Today's podcast is brought to you by Something Blue by Anita Kay, specializing in wedding and event photography. Visit her page on Facebook. For those in love, capture those memories with Something Blue by Anita Kay. Limitation them. I'm Andre the Giant. No masculine out right here, but I'm listening to Unbottled Enthusiasm with Mark Pearls. And if you don't listen to it, I'm going to squeeze you so very much, because I love to squeeze and squish. We can't give them this much power in the cartoon world. A podcast, and I was told that if I did your podcast that I would, you know, advance to the next level. And we're podcasting and photographizing in front of the great the worst gigs of their life are, are with, because of Mark Poulos. <laughs> Anyone want a husband? Free free to a home. Now it doesn't even have to be a good home. Just free to a home. Ladies and gentlemen, Andre the Giant would like to do his impression of Willie Nelson. Suck yourself dry! Alright. Hello, folks, and welcome back to the Unbridled Enthusiasm Podcast. I'm your host, Mark Poulos. It's good to be back. So I just got done listening to a uh, a radio show where the host was interviewing James Cameron, uh, not the movie director. He's a uh, retired police detective that uh, worked for 10 years in cold cases And he's recently written a book about a serial killer that no one really knows about. And the reason that I'm doing this podcast and I got to this YouTube video of this radio show was making a murderer. So there's a theory, one of the new theories out, obviously one of the original theories was that he was set up for the crime, obviously. That's what the whole thing is about. But the, uh, the question that always keeps coming up is if he was framed, who framed him? You know? Because, I mean, as I said in the last podcast when I did Making a Murder, it's like, I don't think the police killed Teresa Hall back. They may have uh, planted a bit of evidence just to make sure that the case stuck because there wasn't uh, as much physical evidence originally um, and they were worried that he was going to somehow get away with it because there wasn't enough evidence. Um, So I could see that. But then it gets to the point where you start asking the question of like, who framed him and why did they frame him? So there's a theory out right now. that this serial killer, uh, Edward Wayne Edwards, was the one behind the framing. Because the interesting case uh, about this serial killer is his intellect and his interest in not only committing many, many murders but like his enjoyment and fascination with framing other people for his murders and watching them um, go through the justice system and then some have already been executed for crimes that he committed and 
yeah, so we're going to talk about that, or I'm going to talk about that on the podcast today, because I think it is, like, one of the most interesting, creepy, and just skin-crawling things I've ever heard in my life. Because it's like, anytime you hear about a serial killer, and, you know, they make movies about them, and, and you hear the gory details about some of the shit, and, and it's, you know, it's terrifying to think that, you know, there's people out there that A, want to kill people, but are also so psychotic and, like, out of their minds that there's no rhyme or reason to it, you know, that they're just driving through their day and they're like, hey, look at that guy. I think I'm going to go chop his head off and put it in a trash can. You know, it's like no provocation, no nothing. You know, they're just psychopaths and they just like killing people. And then to think in the first time in like history that I've ever heard of, that not only is it, it's not good enough for him to kill people he needs to frame other people for the crime and watch them go down and just watch their lives crumble underneath them and their friends and family turn away from them and have them been be dragged through the mud on uh, the media and, and then ultimately be executed for a crime that he committed I mean it's ridiculous so I listened to this uh it's about two and a half hours. It's on YouTube. If you look up uh, Edward Wayne Edwards, um, it'll come up because this guy, James Cameron, he wrote a book, uh, you know, called uh, Edward Wayne Edwards, uh, The Serial Killer You've Never Heard About, because basically <clears throat> he committed his first murder when he was 11. And he didn't get captured and dubbed a serial killer until, I think it was uh, 2007. Think about that. And in 2007, when he got caught, he was like 78. He was born in like 1933. And in 1944, he committed his first murder. And he didn't get caught until like 2006 and the only way that he got caught was he had uh, he had gotten married and he had five children um, he had two older ones and then there was a gap and then he had three kind of younger ones in a grouping and he fucking he took the three kids with him to go and murder somebody like, they were in the car, and he just, like, snatched some lady up at the park, killed her, and, like, dismembered her, and then just kind of bebopped it back to the car, and then made some kind of comment, like, whoa, there's body parts over there, or something like that. So they were, uh, I, f I feel like the guy he framed for that was up on appeal or or there was some kind of cold case show that was on but his daughter saw something about the murder on television and being 11 at the time when he committed this murder she remembered being at that place 
when the murder happened and remembered her dad saying, wow, there's a bunch of body parts laying over there. So she was the one that, like, said, hey, I think my dad, like, chopped this person up. You should probably look at him. Did a DNA test, and then, you know, bang, they had him. And then he he decided that he was going to uh, confess to a few other murders, none of which were any kind of uh, huge news stories. But what it did was it kind of piqued this uh, James Cameron's... Uh, I feel like his name's John Cameron, but it might be... I don't know. Anyways... Look up Edward Wayne Edwards, uh, the serial killer you never knew about. Uh, I think I'm going to buy the book so I can read it. It's uh, such an interesting story. So when when that information came out, it kind of piqued his interest being a cold case file guy. And he had grown up in uh, Great Falls, Montana, and there had been what they called a lover's lane murder where it was like uh, a husband and a wife or not a husband and wife, just like a couple that was out for a drive in like a lover's lane and he ended up killing both of them and dismembering them and like living, leaving their body parts everywhere. And so he, you know, did, I think it was like 10 years of investigations and he started tying this serial killer guy to like some of the most prolific unsolved serial killer cases in history not so, but like murder cases in history, <clears throat> and you're like, what cases would those be, Mark? Oh, I don't know, like the West Memphis Three, Chandra Levy, Jean Benet Ramsey, uh, Adam Walsh. I mean, this is what we're talking about the Zodiac killings. Like, this guy supposedly, I mean, this, the, the detective of the cold cases is pretty sure, you know, well, he's 100% sure that he's the Zodiac killer, he's also the Black Dahlia killer, he's a lipstick killer, he's, uh, it's just insane to even think about. So, there's a lot of books that have come out lately about the Zodiac, like there was some kid who who wrote a book about his dad who was convinced that he was the Zodiac Killer and um, a, uh, a state trooper wrote a book about he was convinced it was this other guy who was the Zodiac Killer but this detective is convinced that uh, Edward Wayne Edwards is the Zodiac Killer because of the letters that, that were written and the verbiage that was used in it and some of the ciphers he actually him and another guy ended up cracking one of the Zodiac ciphers and it actually spelled out uh, Edward Wayne Edwards and he said over his career as a serial killer and and doing this shit like one of his favorite things to do was to write letters to police and like taunt them and plant evidence to point to uh, to other people and that's like one of his favorite things to do and he also was, um, so basically his story was like when he was five, uh, his dad was gone or murdered or something. And then his, 
his mom got killed, so then he was sent into a, uh, a Catholic orphanage where he was uh, beaten and molested and stuff. And I think they said when he was 11 was when he, he just escaped and went to Chicago and did like his, uh, his first three or four murders. And his first ones were like, he just like showed up in some, a few ladies houses and like killed them while they were in bed and he got away with it. But a, a big thing for him was, um, you know, because of all the horrible things that had happened to him at the Catholic Church orphanage that he wanted to turn away from God and, and became a Satanist. So a lot of his, uh, his killings and stuff were ritualistic, you know, and, and which brings it to uh, the West Memphis Three. You know, that was a, a huge part. If you haven't seen Paradise Lost 1, 2, and 3, um, those are great movies to watch about the three kids that were um, convicted of, of those crimes because it's so crazy when you watch Making a Murderer and the way that went down and then you go back and you watch the West Memphis Three, it's, it's so eerie, the similarities between both of the cases um, because in both cases they had a guy who was basically coerced into a confession, which was the majority of their evidence against the other people. And a lot of the physical evidence just was kind of lacking. And and he would just like, he would show up in, in the videos and stuff. And there's supposedly a shot of him dressed up like in a disguise that looks like Santa Claus at the cemetery with the West Memphis Three, and now this guy, like, I hadn't heard this part of it, but they said, if you go back and watch that scene where he's in the, um, he's in, in the cemetery with the one kid that was killed by the West Memphis Three, they, they pan to him, and he's, he's dressed up like Santa Claus, and then for whatever reason, like, he opens his wallet, he pulls a dollar out, and he shows the all-seeing eye from the back of the dollar, puts it back in his wallet, and then he leaves. And supposedly, like, there was markings on, on the bodies of, like, blunt force trauma that uh, this detective is saying match the cane that he's holding in that scene, too. Which is just insane. I mean, if that's actually true, that's, you know, because... This detective said he would taunt the police and he would do all this kind of stuff because of his way above average intellect. Like, he just felt that he was smarter than everybody. And, I mean, if all of this stuff is true, it's pretty obvious that he was. I mean, to be able to commit that many murders, I think this detective attributed like 178 murders to him over his lifetime to attribute that many murders to him and getting away with it and not only getting away with it but having the wherewithal to plan evidence and frame other people for him I mean holy shit you know so the Santa Claus thing is even creepier 
it's like the creepiest thing I've heard all day and it's still kind of messing with my head so he has a connection to the Jean Benet Ramsey case because they got a letter in the case and one of the big things that the Zodiac Killer would do when he would sign letters is he would do the Iron Cross symbol which is like the plus sign with the circle around it and supposedly that symbol is somewhere on uh, on the Jean Benet Ramsey letter but basically so reports from her friends as Jean Benet was like six or seven or something she had uh, been telling her friends that Santa Claus was coming to visit her at night and they were like, you know, I don't know if you know what you're talking about because Santa Claus only comes on Christmas Eve. And she's like, no, he comes every once in a while to, like, wave at me through the window and and come and see me or something. And it's like, God, even saying it, it gives me goosebumps and creepers. Because, like, the big thing with that case is supposedly someone fed John Bonet Ramsey, like, a bowl of... Uh, pineapple at the counter before she went missing and no one else in the house takes credit for for giving her a pineapple snack that night no the parents the brother any of them so it's like and there was no signs of forced entry and and uh there was no like footprints outside all that kind of stuff so it's like i don't know how the hell he was able to hide his footprints, but if he was pretending to be Santa Claus and somehow had this girl fooled that he was Santa Claus because she ended up letting him into the house, you know, unencumbered, so he didn't even need to break into the house and then kidnapped her and subsequently beheaded her, apparently. But the craziest thing about that was um, so back like near the beginning of his murder spree back in the 40s and early 50s there was a murder of a six year old girl who was beheaded and stuff and that that murder was referenced as the lipstick murders and it's just you know apparently what this detective says if you read about both cases it's eerie how both of them are similar and the uh and on that same thought line like back in the the late 50s early 60s 60s um three kids were murdered in chicago in like a robin hills park in chicago um in kind of a ritualistic way which was like eerily similar to the West Memphis Three boys that were killed in the Robin Hood Hills Park area. And it was like, uh, yeah, I mean, that kind of stuff is just ridiculous. And then they come to find out that he's got connections to Adam Walsh. And uh, so with that one, So Adam Walsh was kidnapped uh, from a store down in Hollywood, Florida. And this detective is saying 
that that's a connection between the two because he committed the uh, Black Dahlia murders, murder in uh, in Hollywood, California, and then he went and he committed the um, the Adam Walsh murder in in Hollywood, Florida. So there's like a connection there. Also, um, he keeps taking these kids at six years old. So it's like, he didn't really mention anything about it, but it, you know, if his, he's so satanic and like, you know, ritualistic and stuff and he keeps grabbing these kids that are six years old. I mean, it's pretty obvious that it's, you know, the six, six, six type of stuff. But, uh, so he was kidnapped and then they just, uh, they found his head in a drainage ditch. It's such horrific things, you know. But then he would do these murders and then he would come back and he would start, you know, like calling the tip lines and sending taunting letters to the police, directing them to other people. And and that was the thing with the Adam Walsh case was apparently... Uh, John Walsh's father, who's, as you know, if you don't know, is uh, the host of America's Most Wanted, and uh, the majority of his life, he's been trying to chase down the killer of his son, and so apparently at some point, John Walsh had got a taunting letter after they had focused in on this one guy, and were pretty pretty sure he was the killer and I think he ended up getting convicted of it and then he got a taunting letter from from Edward uh, Wayne Edwards basically like telling him that uh, the dude's still out there you got the wrong guy and he's just you know basically cheerleading for himself it's just absolutely insane you know and that's the thing. That's why people think that he's involved in the Stephen Avery case because his biggest push, like his biggest thing, is he wants the notoriety. Like he wants his crimes to be in the news. He wants his crimes to get the notoriety. And whenever he sees something that's taking away from, from his notoriety... He's got to step up and do something that redirects it. Like, apparently, um, the Chandra Levy case where he killed her and it was getting a lot of press, and he was probably pretty happy about that. And then six days after that, 9-11 happened, and it took all away, it took all the press away from the Chandra Levy case, obviously, and it was turned towards um, 9-11. And apparently, he started getting pissed off about that so he started getting on the anthrax bandwagon and sending a bunch of anthrax to people and through the mail and ended up killing a bunch of people because of the anthrax I don't know how they've traced that back to him too but I mean just think about that man it's ridiculous to think that you know the the guys in the West Memphis Three, Stephen Avery, uh, John Benet Ramsey's parents. There's supposedly 11 people that are still in prison 
who he framed for crimes that he committed and uh edward wayne edwards he's he's long dead it's you know we can't get any more confessions out of him you know and the and the problem with these uh police agencies around the country and i get it i understand it you know they they had who they thought was their man they had the evidence uh a jury convicted them and and they brush their hands off and say, you know, done deal. Not even creeping into their minds that they were being played by uh, this mastermind. And and that there's a chance that a lot of these guys are innocent. Like, they don't want to... A, they don't want to go back and open the case to make it seem like they have the wrong guy. Because if they do that, then it kind of gives them an avenue for an appeal where if they just leave it closed, then there isn't that chance. And then the other big reason is if they reopen it up and then they find out that they're innocent, well, now they're looking at lawsuits for wrongful imprisonment and and all that stuff. So it's like when they finally let the, uh, the three kids from the West Memphis three out of prison because uh, the DNA evidence exonerated them. The court system still wasn't... still didn't want to give them, like, a full, clean slate or whatever. Because if they did that, all three of them would be able to sue the police department and the justice system in Memphis. So what they did is they concocted this thing where they basically said, you know, that they didn't do it but they were still guilty or something like that, which I think, you know, protected the police and, and protected the, uh, the court system's asses from any lawsuits and shit, which I think is just cowardice. It's like, we all know they didn't do it. You know, the DNA evidence is out there now. Just let them be on their way. Let them sue and get, you know, a couple, couple bucks for the rest of their life. I mean, the one poor kid, Damien Eccles, you know, it is prison, but, you know, he was he was getting raped pretty bad for, like, a year. And apparently the, the jail didn't do anything about it. And he ended up suing the jail for, um, you know, not protecting him in there or something like that. I don't really know how that, uh, how that case shook out. But, uh, God, just to listen to some of the shit that this guy did. I mean, even if he was... If he was the Memphis Three killer, like, Christ, man. Some of that stuff in Paradise Lost where they're talking about, you know, these kids' genitals getting carved off and stuff. It's just like, oh my God, man. What a psychopath. Like, that was his thing. Like, the detective was talking about, like, when he was growing up in Cleveland from age 4 to 11, apparently there was a serial killer, um, terrorizing Cleveland. And I, I think he was referred to as the torso murderer because he would kill people and then cut off all their limbs and their head and just like lame about the city. Like there'd just be like a lake somewhere, arm somewhere. And, and he grew up reading about that in the newspaper and like seeing it in the news and 
And this detective is convinced that that has obviously had a profound effect on him because he recreates the torso murderers a lot. And that's the thing, too, is, like, he would he would mimic so much of his murders, like, different places, and they would be the same, and, and nobody was connecting them, which made him, which he found even funnier, and... Um, he would just continue to write these letters to the police, just taunting them with clues and stuff and just pushing people the right way. And, and they were convinced too, that, that, uh, they caught a snapshot of him in the hallway outside the courtroom in that, uh, show making a murderer. So they, uh, they were pretty convinced on that too. If it's him, who knows, you know, I mean, they do a split screen with it and it's, it looks a lot like him standing there in the hallway behind uh, helium voice creepo texter prosecutor Krantz. Uh, God, that guy's a creepo. I, I think I talked about it on the last Making a Murderer podcast, but God, just what a creep. You know, it's like he's defending this lady who had domestic abuse, and then he just starts texting her like, Hey, you want to come over and, like, uh, I'll take care of you. I got a house and blah, blah, blah. It's like, whatever, man. I was so... That was, like, my favorite part of the whole show. I think I said it last time. It was, like, my favorite part of the whole show. It's like, if the show didn't end with Stephen Avery being exonerated and getting out of prison, it better end with something horrible happening to that prosecutor, and that's exactly what happened. And one of the newer developments... In that case, which just came out, which is even more despicable, is apparently uh, Krantz had sent Stephen Avery a letter basically asking him permission to write the book for him and saying, like, you know, uh, I, I know more about this case than anybody, and, you know, if anybody's going to write a book about it, it should be me, and... Um, you know, he goes, all you have to do is just finally let down your guard and admit that you killed Teresa Hallback and give me all the gory details and I'll write the book and split the profits with you or something. It's like, what? After all that shit, now he's going to the sky to be like, hey, let's write a book together. And of course, uh, Steve Avery did, uh, did the correct thing. He told him to fuck off, and then he posted the letter online, which I think is, like, such a great move. Because this guy's, like, a total knob. He's, like, you know, Krantz, he's going on everything. He's like, there's a lot of stuff you guys... Oh, I'm sorry. There's a lot of stuff you guys aren't talking about. There's a lot of evidence. You know, he... He puts so much of the case on the DNA under the hood latch, you know, it's like, we could plant blood, we can plant semen, but we can't plant sweat, and, uh, you come to find out that the DNA under the hood latch is not sweat, air quotes, it's just DNA, so it's like, just because it's not blood, you know, um, I'm sure there's other ways to kind of capture, you know, maybe it's saliva, you know, maybe somebody, you know, saw him, like, toss a soda pop 
that had a straw in it, you know, and they snatched that straw up and, and rubbed it all over the hood latch, you know, who knows, you know, but he's just, I think what's hateable about Krantz is like, he's so, so unwavering in the fact that, uh, that Stephen Avery is guilty. It's like watching those, uh, those Paradise Lost documentaries, the one detective that looks like Charles Grodin, he's like bald with a, with a big bushy mustache, like Charles Grodin, that might not be the right guy, uh, the guy that was from, uh, 9 to 5, I can't remember what his name is, but he looks like that guy, and they're always talking to him, they're like, you know, with all this, uh, other evidence that's coming up, and, uh, you know, stuff that points to this and that, and that was the other thing, too, is like, on that day when they go to the cemetery and you see the scene of Edward, uh, Wayne Edwards dressed up like Santa Claus, that's the day that the camera crew gets that suspicious knife that has the blood on it. And, you know, they're, they're saying that it was, uh, Edwards that, that did that, you know, to add some more, you know, twists and turns to the case and yeah so he uh the the ball guy in the West Memphis 3 you know they they're like we got this this knife that's got the blood on it we've got this you know and uh and, and that was the thing I didn't know either was when they when they interrogated uh Miss K- Miss Kelly, I think his name is, in the West Memphis Three, they interrogated him for 12 hours. 12 hours! I gotta tell you, man, sitting in a room with two cops for 12 hours, I can't be sure that I wouldn't start admitting to things just so it would end, you know? And they ask him, they're like, were you mean to him? No. Were you yelling at him? No. Were you this and that? But it's like, just the mere fact of keeping him prisoner in a room for 12 hours, whether you're nice to him or not, just, just the idea of holding him in a room for 12 hours is, is a pretty shitty thing to do. And they, you know, Krantz and this police officer, they're like, you know, presenting him with all this other evidence and, and other things. And, and they're both like, no, no, I've got no doubt the right man is in prison. Like, no doubt? Come on. Nothing's fucking absolute in this world. Like, you can have a little doubt, you know? But they're just unwavering. Like, no doubt whatsoever. The right man is in prison. I think, uh... So Dr. Phil did a show a couple weeks ago where he had, um... The sheriff on. That was the sheriff during the Stephen Avery case... And, and he got him to admit like a crazy thing that, that he had known about the, uh, the so-called phone call that came in saying there was a guy, uh, in this other city that was admitting to the crime that Steve Avery was in prison for. And he knew about the phone call the year or day that it came in and he didn't do anything about it. And, you know, when he was pressed about it, Dr. Phil was like, why didn't you do anything about it? He was just like, well, I was just, you know, a guy on the street. I wasn't, uh, I wasn't, uh, one of the, the head honchos in the, in the investigation. 
so that wouldn't have been my call. It would have been the sheriff at the time's call or, or the lead detective. And he's like, they had that information and they decided not to move on it. It's like insane. But I think the craziest part too was like, um, so he asked the sheriff when Stephen Avery gets released, uh, on the false claim of him raping the woman, he goes, so when he was released from custody, did you apologize to him? And the smugness of the sheriff where he was like, apologize for what? And he goes, wrongfully imprisoning him for 18 years? And he was like, no, I never apologized because uh, I didn't think that was necessary. It's like, what? You falsely imprison a guy for 18 years? You're not going to just be like, sorry, my bad. You know, he was like, you know, I did my best as a police officer and I, th- and I thought I was doing a good thing and, and turned out that, uh, it went a different way. You know, it's just like, holy shit, the balls on this guy, like absolutely no remorse whatsoever for, uh, for locking Stephen Avery up. And I mean, every twist and turn in the show and everything that goes on, you can tell that there was, there was a pretty good, a pretty good vendetta against Stephen Avery. And that's what this, uh, Edward Wayne, uh, Edwards was hoping for when he would do shit like this. He would just be like looking for those, those small opportunities where, where the, where the police would zone in on somebody specific. And then he would just start leaving little clues and like writing letters and pushing them more towards this guy and uh, just put him in jail, you know, it's, it's his MO, and, and it's the thing he loves the most, and it's just a crazy, crazy story to hear about, so, I mean, I, I suggest you go to YouTube and look it up and listen to it, it's about two hours and 20 minutes long, and just amazing, maybe even pick up that book, you know, uh, Edward Wayne Edwards, uh, the serial killer you never knew about, and, and read it. It's just, and then, uh, I, th- I think there's another video on YouTube where he actually talks about the connection between Stephen Avery and, uh, and the serial killer, uh, Edwards. So that's a good, a good listen to. So check all that out, you know, making a murderer. It's taken over our airwaves. It's a big story. And, and I think people tune into it because it's, it's, it's a situation where, like, it's something that could probably happen to any of us, you know. You'd be in the wrong place at the wrong time. Somebody could uh, wrongfully pick you out of a lineup. Somehow your DNA could be someplace that uh, you were just there. You had nothing to do with it. But, you know, now you're on trial fighting for your life and nobody believes you. And all the evidence looks at you even though you're innocent, you know, and you got these few people in law enforcement that have the authority to kind of put things where they need to be and, and, you know, get the, get your door locked and the key thrown away. So it's kind of a terrifying thing, but, uh, anyway, so you can get this podcast at Podbean, iTunes, uh, Stitcher, anywhere podcasts are. I just recently updated my website with all my new upcoming dates, um, this weekend, I will be at uh, the VIP Lounge in uh, Superior, Wisconsin, doing a show on uh, Friday, February 12th. And then the big show, 
which will be at uh, Running Aces in Forest Lake, February 13th, uh, Valentine's Weekend. Come out for that show if you haven't gotten your tickets yet. And uh, if you're not from the Minneapolis area and and you find a city that's close to you, then I'm going to be come out and see a show and let's chat. And, uh, yeah, tune in next time when we talk about who knows. So it was simple as he knew she was going there to photograph at 2.30. That was the time she showed up. That area is so rural. I just drove there. It's at least a quarter mile from the main highway into the salvage yard. And then the salvage yard itself is 44 acres, so it's massive area, very rural. All Edwards would have had to do was be on the side of the road, just down the road off the entrance to the salvage yard, at the old man needing help. That's it. What the ruse was, we will never know. But it would be as simple as just an old man flagging you down and saying, hey, I need help. Teresa was shot in the left temple, and she was also shot in the back of the head. Well, she was the driver, then that's exactly how he would have done it. He would have walked up to the driver's window with a 22, popped one in the head, and a 22 does not go through for the most part. It goes into the brain and zips around and kills you instantly. Doesn't bleed much. Push her in and drive away. She wasn't reported missing for three days. So she had three, he had three days with that vehicle and her, and nobody even knew she was gone. And then on the fourth day, the Avery family went to their cabin. They left town and went to the cabin. The only one there was Earl, and that's the day that he plants the car, the bones in the fire pit, the bones in the barrel, the cell phone in the barrel. Everything he planted there, Edwards had done exactly like that in 1955 before he came to Great Falls and killed here. He had done a murder exactly like Teresa Hallback in California in 1955, so... That's how it went down. It was that simple. Um, he knew that Steve, a- that Steve Avery would be having a big bonfire because it was Halloween night. It's just what they did. Sit around, drink beer, and have a bonfire. Um, that body was blown to bits by a bomb, and Edwards detailed how he makes his bombs. Basically, he takes a body. He goes into the forest with the body where he finds a log on the ground that's a dense log, digs a hole under the log, fills it with gravel, fills it with ammonia nitrate, fills it with Coleman fluid, puts the body on top between the log and the hole, and sets it off. It blows the body to bits, and that's what he did to a body in 1960 in Portland, Oregon. And then he just collected the remains, and he threw it in the fire pit. And uh, that... Terry Halbach's remains fit in a very small box. That's all that was left. They were sharded. She was blown to bits by Edwards' bomb. Our next guest is John Cameron, and John is a 53-year-old retired police detective from Great Falls, Montana. His career in law enforcement began back in 1979. He retired in 2005 as a sergeant of detectives working cold cases. He's uh, worked on FBI serial killer task forces, catching ritualistic child cannibal killer Nathan Barjona, and his cases have been featured on America's Most Wanted, Dateline NBC, and he helped produce a series known as Most Evil on True TV. 
In 2010, while working as an analyst for the Montana Board of Pardons and Parole in Deer Lodge Prison, Montana, he was in a position to access information that had been kept secret for 55 years, unraveling the most intelligent and perhaps one of the most prolific serial killers ever. What it turned out Mr. Edwards would do is he would create horrific murders that were in the press constantly that created terror, and he would set people up. And it was always about the setup. So at a very young age, starting when he was 12 years old, he was able to set up a guy for a murder he had done. And that began his pathology the rest of his life, is he would get off on not only killing people, but then setting up someone close to the victim and watching the system execute him. And so just before Edwards came to Great Falls, Montana in 1956, he set up a guy in California, in Berkeley, California, named Burton Abbott, exactly like he set up Steve Avery. He kidnapped a girl, hit her body for three months, and then started planting the girl's property in Burton Abbott's basement, in his garage, and eventually planting her body at a cabin in Northern California and framing him for murder in 1955 before he came to my hometown and executed a couple. And that man was executed in Deer Lodge Prison, Montana, in 1957 for a murder that Edwards had actually done, framed him, and got him executed. Now, did he admit to that? Did he admit that that's what he did, or is this speculation on your part? Well, this was the investigation of where he was when he was with his wife in 1955 and 56. I had the advantage of interviewing his wife, who's still alive, and she had been with him on the travels for eight months when he killed in California, Montana, Idaho, Illinois, Florida, New York. And his whole MO was to fly into a city under assumed identity, usually a preacher, a cop, or a doctor of psychiatry, traipse around with his wife, stage a horrific murder, frame somebody, and then just sit back and taunt the authorities with either letters or false information, false evidence that always steered towards the innocent person. And so he was able to frame people, steer the evidence to those people, and watch the press destroy them, and then watch the system execute them. Wisconsin, you said, was the first state to recognize that he is a serial killer. Is that right? Yeah, that's right. He was uh, in Wisconsin in 1980 hiding on a campground in Jefferson, Wisconsin, with his wife and five kids when he kidnapped that young couple there and uh, held their bodies and uh, stole their car and then hid their car. He did a lot of the things that he did in the Halbach case, actually. And uh, that would be Edward's M.O. He would kill in, say, Wisconsin in 1980. He was going to return to that state and kill again and frame somebody. That's what he did in every state that he killed. And if, uh, if other agencies went after his innocent victims he would go after somebody else and just do it again and again. And so in 2010, Mr. Edwards pled guilty to five murders spanning 20 years in two different states, and they all involved kidnappings, shootings, stabbings, fire, torture, uh, auto theft, and he was always under assumed identity. You're speaking very much like you have no doubt in your mind that Edward Wayne Edwards is involved in the Hallback case. Well, when I turned on the documentary and started watching it, I actually couldn't believe what I was watching because that really is what happened behind the scenes of all of Edwards' setups. 
is not only was it designed to set up, say, Steve Avery, but it was also designed to set up the cops who were all over the press um, being deposed at the time of the murder. And we're about to lose a lawsuit, and Steve Avery was about to be a rich man and get 36 million bucks. But Edwards decided to steal his recognition, and that's what Edwards always did. He committed crimes for recognition. And what that meant was, if somebody else was in the press getting recognized, getting press like Steve Avery was as the most wrongfully convicted man in 2003, 4, and 5, Edwards would decide to either kill him or set him up or frame him, you know, frame him. So when Steve Avery was released 9-11 in 2003, he became famous. He was all over the papers. He was all over the press. Uh, a committee was put in his name in the legislature in Wisconsin, and a bill was going to be made in his name on Halloween Day of 2005. And uh, Edwards decided to set him up on Halloween, and it had to be on Halloween because he had killed repeatedly on Halloween throughout his life. And during the time frame that Steve Avery got framed, two of Mr. Edwards' Halloween murders were playing out in courts. One of them from 2001 in Columbia, Missouri on Halloween night where he killed an editor of a newspaper. And Ryan Ferguson and Charles Erickson went down for that. And then the other being the Halloween murder of Martha Moxley in 1975. All of these murders were playing out at the same time that Edwards decided to frame Steve Avery on Halloween, and it, it was designed to be happen on Halloween. Now, there is this claim that in Episode 6 of the... Uh, um the uh, Making a Murderer serial, uh, series on uh, Netflix, that in one scene when they're at the courthouse, there is a man in the background who looks astonishingly like Edward Wayne Edwards uh, from some of the other pictures that I've seen on them, on, on the uh, uh, online and in, in different places. What do you make of that? Do you believe that that might be Edward Wayne Edwards? Well, when I first watched the documentary, that's the first thing that caught my eye, and it's in episode six called Tracing the Evidence, and I think it's at uh, 21 minutes and 33 seconds. And there's about a five-second shot of a man that does appear to look like Edward Edwards standing at the courthouse door behind the prosecutor, and that's it. It's just a shot of an old man standing there. But Edwards had always done things like that. He would groom his way into his funerals. He groomed his way into other documentaries. And he would get himself a camera shot, a cameo shot in his own murder mystery. And that's what he got off of, and that's what he called crimes of recognition. If he could kill, set someone up, and then attend the courtroom and get photographed on the news, and nobody knew the killer was there, that's what he would do. And so I actually tried to identify that man, and that's the reason that I went to the Manitowoc County Sheriff's Office to see if they could help in trying to identify that man and the Averys and anybody involved in the Hallback family, but we haven't been able to identify him yet. Well, I know I, I sent the photograph, the image, um, over to uh, Michael Griesbach, our first-hour guest, uh, first, second, and third-hour guest, and asked him if it was if the person was recognizable, since he's in that area and knows those people. Is this somebody that they would have, um, you know, recognized? Uh, and I never did get a response on that. If I get one, I will forward it on, and I'll also let the uh, Coast audience know what the, the finding was. There's also a belief he shows up in the first West Memphis 3 documentary, and you believe that he has a, a serious tie to that case as well. 
Well, yeah, that case is in my book, and he he does appear at the uh, at the cemetery of the uh, the little boy that was killed. As the mom and dad are sitting there at the grave, uh, the cameraman shoots off to a guy that looks like Santa Claus, putting money in his wallet and carrying a cane. And that was just Ed Edwards getting a shot into his another murder he had committed in uh, West Memphis in 1993, where three innocent teens went down for that one under a false confession. It was a lot of false confession cases that Edwards' murders ended up being set-ups. And he would usually stir the, the police to somebody who was weak-minded, you know, who, who would be easy to get a confession out of. And Brandon Dassey was one of the easiest ones to get a confession out of. I met with uh, the mother, the father, both brothers, and Brenda. That's Brendan Dassey's uh, mother inside the salvage lot. Told them who I was. I had uh, spoke to them on the phone a few days earlier, told them I'd be coming out. I gave them copies of my book, told them what I knew about Mr. Edwards, um, what his MO was like, um, the fact that he had killed in Wisconsin before and he had set people up his whole life, and just wanted them to have the information. Um, and also wanted to see if I could gain access to some letters that were sent to them. Um, they, they received letters back after uh, Teresa Halbach was killed. But uh, shortly after I was there, um, Kathleen Zellner, the attorney out of Chicago, contacted them and decided that she was going to be representing Stephen. And so everything that uh, they have regarding the case will go to Kathleen Zellner and her investigators and she's going to represent Stephen, as she has represented other people that Edward set up on Halloween, and that was a guy named Ryan Ferguson, and she got him out. So she's a great attorney. Um, it was good to see her step forward because the Averys themselves were devastated. They just don't understand what's going on. Um, you know, people have said horrible things about their family and their life and the way they act and use their bad character to crucify Steve for the murder. But when you actually try to talk about the evidence in the case, all they bring up is his bad character because there is no evidence in the case. You know, if she was tied to the bed and killed or she was killed in the garage, there's no evidence that none of that happened because it didn't happen. Uh, it was planted in the fire pit three days later.